Hey there, welcome to the FBCA College Podcast. My name is Connor Torrealba and I'm the College Minister here at First Baptist Church Arlington. This podcast is a recording of our teaching times that happen every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. at the Student Center on our campus. It's been a while since our last upload, but we're back now. And what a time to be back. We're in a series called Six Questions. Over the winter break, I chatted with some of y'all and asked, What are some questions that you or your friends are asking about the faith? I got all that info together and kind of crystallized it into six overall questions. And while I could try to answer all of them, I thought it would be a lot more fun to bring in some other voices and some experts to tackle each. In this first episode, Luke Stair, a fellow minister at FBCA, tackles the question, how do I navigate doubt? He talks deconstruction, uh, birds a lot, <laughs> and philosophy. And at the end, we had a Q&A time where students could write in questions for him to answer live. We recorded the Q&A as well, but I didn't have a mic on me, so we apologize if the audio is like a bit odd at that point. You should be able to hear his answers, though. And we've got a plan for next week's episode to resolve that. I hope you find this lesson helpful. love reading nature writing. I don't know if this is anything else anyone enjoys, but books about mushrooms, trees, plants, intertidal zones are great. But what I really love, love, love are books about birds. Uh, And yes, birds. Are there any fellow bird nerds in the room? No? No bird nerds. You can like birds. You're going to love birds a whole lot more in a minute. Um, So one of my favorite bird books, and yes, uh, that is a category of book, uh, is a book called A World on a Wing, and it's written by this guy named Scott Widensall, who is actually one of the best bird writers. And again, yes, that is actually a category of people. And this is a book about global bird migration. And it's actually one of the least understood of all natural phenomenon. And so ornithologists, which are the people who study birds for a living, Uh, have long tried to understand just exactly where birds go, how they do this, because they do some incredible feats as they migrate around the world. Uh, So bird migration studies have advanced quite a bit in recent years, and part of this is due to the fact that geo-trackers have gotten smaller. It turns out it's really hard to put a basically antenna that weighs, you know, an ounce on a bird that weighs half of an ounce. You can't really do that, but as those have gotten smaller we've been able to study these migrations more. So we have a slide of a bird. This is the Arctic Tern. Has anyone seen an Arctic Tern before? This is not what you thought you were getting into tonight. So we used to think that Arctic Tern's migration capped out at about 28,000 miles a year, meaning this bird, this little bird, would fly 28,000 miles annually. But thanks to advancements in geotrackers, we now, researchers now, I'm not one of these people, I'm just reading what they wrote. We now think that these birds, their upper limits are actually closer to 51,000 miles annually. But most most researchers will truthfully admit they actually have no idea the upper limits of this range. And just for reference, the circumference of the Earth So that 28,000 mile I I initially said 
that's 4,000 miles larger than the Earth's circumference. So these birds are flying around the world two times, at least. And it turns out there are all sorts of discoveries to be made in bird science. Uh, and so one day, Scott Weidensall, who is a ornithologist by trade, is talking to his mom on the phone, as some of us do. And he said something along the lines of, well, we used to think X, but now we know why. And his mom just goes, ugh, I hate when you scientists say that. You say, we used to think, but now we know. When really what you should say is, we used to think, but now we think. And there are a lot of times when people come and present new information, and they say it with the utmost certainty. And they'll present with the confidence of a, new, of a scientist presenting a new discovery and say, well, I used to think, but now I know. And these are the sorts of sentiments that I stumble upon when I scroll through Instagram. I'm too old for TikTok. And I see some hip, tattooed, mullet-laden divorcee who's approximately my age come across my screen, and he says something along the lines of, I used to think this about the Bible, about the church, about Jesus, about sexuality, but now I know. And he is so sure, so certain, and he's not the only person who's talking this way. So what is actually going on here? I'm sure I'm not the only person who sees this sort of thing on my social media. So why is it compelling and why does it keep coming my way? This influencer and these types of influencers talk about how they've gone through a process of deconstruction and have now arrived at these conclusions that they embrace with a high level of certainty. So what is deconstruction? Why does it happen? And is it always bad? And these are the sorts of things that we're going to work through tonight. And so I just want to give you kind of a preface. Tonight's not going to be so much of a Bible study as it's going to be a tour of the philosophical and cultural forces that have got us to this point. Uh, I used to be a college theology professor, uh, and so that is going to come to the fore tonight. I've studied philosophy, so we're going to dive into that. We will refer to scripture, but this is not going to be necessarily the typical kind of Bible study-oriented thing you're used to maybe hearing at First Baptist Arlington if you've been here. And don't worry, I love scripture. I think it's very important, and we're going to talk about it. But tonight, I want you all to put on your philosophy hats, and we are going to use some philosophy to help us navigate these concepts that we're seeing. So let's start by talking—thank you. I love your hat. The Word of the Lord is a great hat— um, so let's start by talking about deconstruction. What is it? Where does it come from? And how is it a shaping force in the world and in our lives? So next slide. This is a very sassy, very pouty French philosopher, Jacques Derrida. And in 1967, Jacques Derrida, a French philosopher, wrote the book of grammatology. And in doing so, he introduced the notion of deconstruction to the world. And he wrote, and I will translate, not from the original French, but into plainer English. He wrote, this is what deconstruction is made of. Not the mixture, but the tension between memory, fidelity, the preservation of something that has been given to us, and at the same time, heterogeneity, something absolutely new and a break. So in simpler words, deconstruction is tension. It is the tension between trying to maintain what you've been given 
your attempt to hold on to a pattern of thinking because of your feelings of nostalgia, a desire to be true to it, and taking care of what was handed down to you. But also the tension between that and your pursuit of something new, different, and a breaking off from your old ways of being. Make sense? Okay. Little did Derrida know that the deconstruction, as he conceived of it, would become a cultural force in Western culture. Now, not everyone is necessarily thinking through a Derridean or through Derrida's lens when they talk about deconstruction. It's taken on its own life. Philosophers come up with ideas, but they don't necessarily get to steer where they go through the rest of history. And so deconstruction took on a life beyond Derrida. And so when we think specifically about our own context, and I'm going to make some assumptions here as I talk that we're Christians, and I know not everyone may be a Christian yet, who are in the midst of grappling with doubt and tension in our faith between what we've been told in churches we grew up in or the church we attend now, between what our parents may or may not have taught us and what we're learning now in the context of a college campus, this question of deconstruction is really a question of what do I believe? And it turns out this is actually a really wonderful question to ask. And it's a normal and it's an expected part of your development in faith and as a maturing adult who is fostering independence from your parents. So as you emerge into adulthood and become an adult yourself, deconstruction is actually a normal part of your development of breaking away from your family of origin. So this can feel really scary though, right? If you are experiencing deconstruction, this can feel scary. So let's acknowledge that. Because for some of you, this question of what do I believe is a terrifying one because you have to seriously grapple with that question that's going to cause tension between you and your parents, you and the church you grew up in, or tension even within yourself. Am I still me if I answer that question differently now? Anyone else feel that? Okay, good. The good news is you are not the first person to emerge into adulthood and feel that way when questions arise. This is very normal. And again, this is the tension that's at the core of what deconstruction is. It is a balance between what you've been given and what you're now learning. This is normal in a culture that's rooted in individualism, which the West is. We're not going to get into all of that, but it's normal. So now that we've named it, we've talked about how it makes us feel anxious, how do we move through deconstruction well? So again, deconstruction is a normal part of your growing life in faith. There's a good chance that you were given some things to believe in your childhood or your adolescence that are unbiblical or are at least rooted in bad readings of scripture. So for example, and this is not a great example because I'm not proud of it, I remember as a child or actually as a teenager, one of my older Sunday school teachers teaching something called Curse of Ham Theology. And if you're unfamiliar with this, I'm very happy for you. But it's a view that essentially developed in some sects of Christianity and then gained popularity in the United States around the time of the Civil War and essentially was a theological justification for slavery of people with black skin. And it twists Genesis 9 to say that when Abraham cursed Ham, he was cursed with blackness and was subjugated to slavery. Bad theology. It needed to be deconstructed. 
I needed to take that and say, what do I really believe? What does scripture really say? And first I want to say, my whole church did not teach that. That was one poorly vetted Sunday school teacher. But in this case, something that was handed down to me needed to be deconstructed. That is not a scriptural view. That is not a historical view of the Christian church. It needed to go. I needed to take it apart, examine it, and figure out what I really believed. So I want you to think about your faith as moving through three stages. Okay, so if you're a note taker, the three categories are construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. Okay, so in construction, these are all easy. It's construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. Construction is what happens when you're first learning the faith. Engaging in scripture the first time and you're learning. A lot of what you will be taught is very good. A lot of it is great. But sometimes an errant Sunday school teacher is going to teach you something wrong. Sometimes you will misunderstand through no faults of your own or through the faults of a Sunday school teacher and you will develop poor theology. Or sometimes you'll grow up in a church that has traditions and teachings that they've taught for years but aren't biblical or aren't the only legitimate biblical way to read a text. But this is all part of the construction phase. And for those of us who grew up in church, this likely happened in your childhood. If you're newer to the faith, there's a good chance you're going through construction now while also balancing that with deconstruction. So as you're learning things, you're also deconstructing them. And that's just because of your life stage. Deconstruction typically happens when you go off on your own. And when we start reading scripture for ourselves and we start engaging with other worldviews. How many of you are engaging with other worldviews at this point in your life? You live in Arlington, Texas. You probably go to UTA. There's a very good chance you're engaging with other worldviews. You may not know it, but you very likely are. And so for the first time in your life, you're forced to ask, do I really believe that? And just as there are dangers in the phase of construction, you can get taught something bad. There are dangers in deconstruction. It's possible in this phase to take everything you believe apart and never put it back together again. It's possible to take apart everything you believe and throw the good out with the bad. And it is possible to stay in deconstruction and never move past it. And then in reconstruction, you put your beliefs back together. And for me, this really happened when I went to seminary and I left college still in a phase of deconstructing. And I entered seminary still in that phase, but was forced to figure out what do I really believe? I need to put this together in a meaningful way. And if you're deconstructing it, to do it well, always go back to scripture. So in deconstruction, return, return, return to the word of God. And if something doesn't make sense, get good help. And I want to emphasize good help. There are so many scholarly, credible, and easily accessible resources now that there is no good excuse not to use them. They're out there and they're easy to find. Free and good. The Bible Project. Start there. And if you want to keep going deeper, ask Connor or myself, we would be happy to point you to some good resources. So I want to walk you through an example of how I think deconstruction can go well, because I think it's a buzzword and we associate a lot of negativity with deconstruction, but it is a good and important thing. And I want to give an example of a time that deconstruction went well, so you can see how it works and how you walk through it. So let's walk an example. Let's walk through an example from First Baptist Arlington's own history. Years and years ago, FBC Arlington deconstructed their views on women's roles in the church. 
they had a constructed view that the roles of deacon and minister were closed to women. And then one day, a new person rolled on as chair of our deacon board and was presented with nominations for new deacons. And this included the names of women. So the previous chair had just thrown those names away. But the new chair asked a hard question. Is that what I really believe? And it launched a period of deconstruction for our church. And remember, deconstruction is not a dirty word. Asking that question, examining what had been handed down by a previous generation, and balancing it against the tension of questioning it, caused First Baptist to embark on a careful and conscientious and communal examination of what Scripture actually has to say about the roles of women in the New Testament church, as discussed in Paul's letters. And as our church carefully and consciously examined what the Bible says about women in the New Testament, they came to the realization that women did, in fact, serve as deacons in the New Testament church. I would point you to Romans 16, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. We'll keep going. We can talk about women in ministry another time. I'm very passionate about it, and I will walk you through it if you have questions, but that's not why we're here. After realizing what Scripture actually says, our church reconstructed. They changed course. They took what they examined in Scripture, and they changed the way that they lived. Women became deacons. If you didn't know, the current chair of the deacon board at First Baptist Arlington is a woman. Women became ordained as ministers, and women now preach in our church. And that's not because our church was just trying to yield to cultural currents. This happened in the late 80s, early 90s. It's because our church said, what do we actually think the Bible says? Let's come to it not with our preloaded suppositions or assumptions, but let's see what Scripture actually has to say. And if it says women can't be deacons, then great, women can't be deacons. But upon examining Scripture, our church realized the New Testament actually had, had that. And so we changed. Again, do I really believe this is a call to turn back to see what Scripture says and to do that in community? Okay, so I want to really highlight that. When you are deconstructing and asking that question of, do I really believe this? What do I really believe? It's a call back to Scripture, but also to community. Don't, this is my second piece of advice, don't, please, please, get your religious guidance or biblical interpretation off of Instagram, TikTok, TikTok or a YouTube channel that you just found. This is the same advice I would give to an 80-year-old. YouTube, for example, is great for finding videos that show you how to jumpstart your car, make sourdough, or get a completionist medal in a video game. It is a terrible place to go digging for sound, solid biblical interpretation because literally anybody can start a YouTube video channel about end times prophecy and revelation and get a lot of subscribers, and they are wrong about everything. They're going to say God's coming back next week. They're wrong. Don't listen to that. Your church, though, was selective and careful and diligent about hiring ministers who are theologically reflective and capable people. Uh, if you've ever wondered what the interview process is like for a minister here, you can ask some pretty hard questions, and you have to talk your way through them. And again, the resources we'll recommend are also written by careful, thoughtful, diligent, studious people. Okay, so when you come across, because I know this is the big question, when I come across these Instagram reels, these TikToks of people who are talking about their deconstruction and what they're doing, what do I do with that? 
how do I, how do I navigate their page? How do I navigate and understand what they're saying? So we're going to take another page from the Deconstructionist Philosophy Toolkit. So we're going to just, we're going to embrace deconstruction tonight. There's another deconstructionist philosopher named Paul Ricoeur, and he has a phrase, it's hermeneutics of suspicion. Ricoeur primarily actually operated in religious studies. Hermeneutics is a word we use for biblical studies. It's how you understand and read a text. So in Ricoeur's hermeneutics of suspicion, he said that you should always approach a text with skepticism in order to expose their hidden meanings. So in this case, our text is Instagram Reels and TikToks. And I want you to approach them with suspicion. It's a good thing to do sometimes. So I'm not going to show you any videos because frankly, my first point of suspicion is that anyone who is amassing a following by talking about their deconstruction is doing so for their own personal gain. So if I show that, I just give them what they want. Um, see, I'm already approaching with suspicion. <laughs> this is what I want you to do too. And so after that initial wave of suspicion, an influencer has something to gain by capturing my attention. My next question is, what is this person reacting against? Because remember, deconstruction is about examining what was handed down to them and balancing it against the tension of what comes next. So what did this person actually get handed down to them? What are they deconstructing? What are they reacting against? What are they running away from? And I want to ask that question. And are they reacting against a normal, centrist approach to Christian faith like we practice and teach here? Or are they reacting against something else? Okay, makes sense? So are they actually reacting to normative Christian faith? Is this person, these are the questions, is this person actually reacting against Scripture? Or are they reacting against their own past? Their tradition that was given to them. And we're going to walk through some more cultural religious currents in the, in the U.S. right now because that's going to help you make sense of what you're seeing on social media. So many of these so-called exvangelicals, how many of you have seen that hashtag or that label in some of these reels or TikToks? Exvangelicals, raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay. Your algorithm may be very different than mine. I get birds and running stuff and this. Um, also, it started showing me Catholic stuff. I'm like, you're way off base here. Um, anyway, so... Many of these so-called exvangelicals are not actually exvangelicals at all because they were never evangelicals. They were fundamentalists. And let's parse out what those two things mean. Again, I want to define terms. We're doing a theology class right now. My theology students used to describe my teaching style as chaotic good, and you may be feeling that tonight, and I would like to deeply apologize. This is what it is. So we're going to define terms so we're all on the same page. And so some influencer does not shape the meaning of these words for you uh, in a way that is not true to their historical context and settings. So fundamentalism started as a reaction against liberal theology in the earliest 20th century in the United States. Liberal theology here not to be identified with liberal politics. Liberal theology denied the divinity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection. It thought none of those things were true. The Bible is just some nice moral story. Um, that's what liberal theology is. So fundamentalism starts in the early 1900s as a reaction against that. Okay? And then sometime around 1920, fundamentalism shifted. And it became this growing movement of separatistic 
meaning breaking off from society and other denominational groups, and anti-intellectual Christians. Okay, These were Christians who would scoff at science, philosophy, and would even tell you that your pastor maybe shouldn't even go to seminary. And you may think that's crazy. Okay, This is a real thing. It exists in the United States. And so they would tell you that your pastor shouldn't go to seminary because it will ruin your faith. If you learn too much, you'll get corrupted. Okay, That's fundamentalism. Evangelicals, before they were known as a political entity that actually has very little to do with religion, we can talk about the sociology of that another time, were a group of people who did not like the direction that the fundamentalists were taking after 1920. And they were a more moderate group that did not hate science, uh, appreciated for their education, and was willing to engage with culture. Okay, That's the original kind of origins of the evangelical movement, not as a political entity, but as a kind of more centrist approach to Christians engaging culture and education. Most of the influencers that you're seeing who are deconstructing, who are talking about being ex-evangelical, were never evangelicals. They were fundamentalists. They are reacting to some incredibly restrictive fundamentalist backgrounds and ways of reading scripture, and they needed to deconstruct that. But they're more of a cautionary tale of what happens when this process goes awry. Most of these people's communities could not handle their questions, and they got kicked out, and they had to navigate deconstruction on their own. And as I watch these people, what becomes clear to me is that these communities didn't have good guides who had already deconstructed and could walk through them with that. They got hurt, and they left. And the only community that would help them answer their questions were people who were not part of a community that follows God. Okay? So as we think about deconstruction, as you think about the community you're leaving, maybe this is where you are. Maybe you are coming from a community that could not handle your questions. I don't know your past. Maybe the Christian community found your questions threatening. Or maybe you worried that your community couldn't handle your questions, so you just never voiced them. And you were left to deal with them on your own. But now, you're here. And you are with people who can, who can handle your questions. And to quote one of my very favorite philosophers, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Ecclesiastes 4.12. The questions that deconstruction leaves us with are too big to navigate alone. This community, this church, is able to walk through your questions with you. Do not wrestle alone and don't live in fear that your questions are too hard. You are one strand on your own, but you can weave yourself into the tapestry of this church community that has an overwhelming number of people who know Scripture deeply and well and would compassionately journey alongside you as you wrestle through your questions. So as you think about what I want you to do with this information, because we've talked about a lot of philosophy, hopefully I didn't lose you. Here's what I want you to do. Don't panic. Ask your question. Ask it to people who are wiser and more experienced than you, and ask them to walk you through Scripture until your question rests. I frequently like to tell people, do not be the best Christian you know. Know people who are better at following Jesus than you. If you don't do this, if you don't ask your questions, this will result in something that will lead your life in directions I don't think you want it to go. Don't lose your faith over questions that can be answered. 
And believe me, in 2,000 years of Christian history and theology, someone else has grappled with what you're asking, and you are not the first person to ask your question. Someone else has worked their way through it. Okay. Maybe none of this has made sense to you. If you have never considered Jesus before, this may be a kind of bizarre thing to be talking about. Normally at a Baptist church, people don't get up and talk about Derrida and Paul Ricoeur. Uh, so this is not necessarily what happened. Or birds. <laughs> I will talk about birds anytime you want to talk about birds. Um, but if you've never considered Jesus before, I would like you to in invite you to consider Jesus now. We, and I'll just tell you kind of broad strokes, we believe that God is real. That God made this whole world, made you, and loves you deeply. And then people sinned. And by sin, I just mean we chose to love in the wrong ways. We love money, status, security, etc., more than we love others, more than we love God. And this sin, this disordering of love in our lives brings death. And it is definitively always bringing death. But we also believe that God has not left us alone in this. God has made a way through Jesus. God in the human flesh for us to enter into a fullness of life through Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. And if that's a journey you're interested in considering, I would invite you to have a conversation with Connor, with myself, with any of the student leaders here. But I really, I want to invite you to ask, what do I actually believe about Jesus? Or what do I actually believe about Christianity? Because maybe the things you've been taught about Jesus or the things that you've been taught about Christianity aren't actually true. And maybe you need to deconstruct what you thought about Christianity. And we would invite you to consider what the Bible actually has to say. And you can do that in a community that supports you. And we want to answer questions. So, and we actually have time. Your application is to ask your questions. We have time right now to ask your questions. That's great. Uh, grab one of these chairs. Everybody, let's do it. Okay. I talked longer than I was supposed to. Oh, you're great. Um, exactly. You're like, I had a oh, good. Yeah, look at that. Incredible. Um, I didn't even get to Foucault. <laughs> no. That's fine. Um, let's see. I'm hoping that we can get through most of the questions. If your question doesn't get answered, uh, I know it's anonymous or whatever and all that, but if you it's still burning in your heart and you want to ask, like you can ask Luke afterwards and hang out for a bit. You can ask me. Um, we won't judge you. Whatever your question is, genuinely. Um, let me throw this one real quick here. Okay, so my first question, and you kind of answered this a little bit, but um, this comes kind of a, a summary of two different questions. It's uh, how do I find good help for reconstruction, and who do I talk to when I'm doubtful? Mm, how do I find good help for reconstruction? I'm saying this again for the recording. Yeah. How do I find good help for reconstruction? And then... Uh, who do I talk to when I'm doubtful? Who do I talk to when I'm doubtful? Okay, good help. Uh, good online resources, and it depends on what you're struggling with. If you're just looking for good, kind of broad strokes understanding of what the Bible has to say, the Bible Project is an excellent resource. It's clearly explained. It is researched by top-notch New Testament and Old Testament scholars who contribute to it. It is a fantastic resource for understanding scripture uh, that is very approachable. Uh, 
If you are a reader, I can recommend books, but I don't know that that is always what people want. Uh, but if again, if it's, you know, if I'm considering what I believe about Scripture, there's a great book called The Blue Parakeet by Scott McKnight. He's a great New Testament scholar uh, who really just helps think through what Scripture is. N.T. Wright is another very good, reliable person to consider. But then if you're entering into doubt, uh, first of all, I would say that it's normal. Uh, doubt is something that is always going to be with you. And it's not something that disproves God. Uh, I actually, this morning, the very fact that you think you can doubt God's existence is a uniquely Christian phenomenon that we forget is just, we take it for granted as a part of Western culture, but it's something that Christianity brought into the world because originally you would have never doubted the pagan gods. But through Jesus and then through Paul's teaching, <clears throat> Paul is a guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament. We actually learn that they broke away. They basically broke away from the pagan religious system of the Greco-Roman Empire and made doubting God an actual real possibility. Atheism in the West is uniquely Christian. Um, but if you're doubting, who do you talk to? Uh, you have Connor. Connor's readily available. I will talk to you. Um, again, don't be the best Christian you know. Um, and I mean that not in like a weird way, but always be associating with people who are further along in the faith than you are. Um, talk to those people. Uh, can you go through reconstruction without deconstruction first? Go through reconstruction without deconstruction first. Okay, so let's say that I uh, was building a Lego set, which I have done, um, as maybe all of us have. You're building Legos, and you get to a certain step, and you realize 15 steps ago, you actually put a series of bricks in the wrong place. How do you get to making it right? You have to deconstruct what you've already built to reconstruct what it's supposed to be. You can't reconstruct without going through deconstruction. Uh, I will say, you may encounter people in your life who have never deconstructed. There's a good chance that if you came from a church background where it was not safe to ask questions, that is a church that the majority of the people never deconstructed their faith. They just kind of took what was given to them and never really thought about it. And I don't mean that, I don't mean that to diminish them. They may have never encountered people that challenged them to think that way, or they just found the questions too threatening and they never engaged them. That is an option. You can just stop at construction. You can just stop at deconstruction. But stopping at either of those points, I think you're going to miss out on some really great stuff that comes later in life. Um, okay, so this one's a little, some of these questions are a little long, which is great. Uh, okay. We'll read through it. Should I stand by you so you can just read it into the <laughs> microphone? <laughs> right. Uh, you can maybe summarize it. Um, so it says, when you were on your own uh, during your deconstruction phase, how are you supposed to dictate what you have learned in the past versus new knowledge you gain on being on your own? Okay. So when I'm on my own, how am I supposed to process what I had versus what I'm learning? So, yeah. Okay. So it says, for me, it's the confusion of getting out of a terrible situation to now on your own and not knowing what's good or bad. Okay. Uh, the confusion of coming out of a terrible situation not knowing what's good or bad. If you come from an abusive situation... Uh, get counseling uh, would be the first thing because there's some things you are actually just not equipped to handle on your own. And if you don't know if you need counseling or not, 
a brief conversation with one of us can help you figure that out. Um, so if you've been in a, a situation where you have endured a lot of abuse, a lot of hurt, get counseling. Our church has a counseling center with reputable, trustworthy counselors. Um, we would love to help you get connected with that if that's what you need. Those people are, are able to help you with that deconstruct process. Right. Identify those things. Yeah. Because as much, I think, as we want to assume that we're rational people, um, there's a lot of neuroscience to suggest that you actually, before your brain can form rational thought, your emotional centers of your brain have reacted about 10 times faster than what you're rationally capable of just putting together in your mind. So your emotions are operating at about 10 times the speed of your rational capacities. And so when you're in abusive situations, your emotions are coloring what's true. And you need help to unpack that because you may have been taught good things by an abusive person. And you need help to figure that out and to tease those things apart. And good help, counseling, professional counseling. Um, other than that, I would say, barring an abusive situation, sit down and write out what you believe. What do I believe about God? What do I believe about creation? What do I believe about the Bible? What do I believe about Jesus? What do I believe about discipleship or life? Sit down and actually write out what I believe. Take some real time to do that. That's a good exercise. It's a hard exercise. And as you write that out, try and see, does what I believe correlate to Scripture? Does it line up with what the church has taught? Because if it doesn't, you need to do some reassessing. Um, just thinking through it. And I think speaking to what we've talked about, you know, if you're on your own, you're in a deconstruction phase, don't be on your own. Yeah. That's something that we've talked about here just now. Uh, find those other people that can walk with you through this. Yeah. Uh, no Christian should ever be alone. Yep. It's not good, right? Yeah. Um, okay, let's see. It says, how do I deal uh, with doubt as it relates to just the Christian life? And the desire to chase the things of this world. So I guess this question has to do with just doubting, like, is what God has described good versus what I want to do? Yeah. How do you handle that tension between what God wants and what you want? Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, this is what sin is all about, right? So if sin, and this is what Augustine, he's an early church theologian, North African guy, he talked about that sin is love out of order. And I think this is a really helpful way to think about sin. Uh, so sin is love out of order. It's when we love things in the wrong ways. And we all love stuff and we all love things. And God actually made the world to be good, right? We read that in Genesis. The world is good. That's how God made it. But you can love it in the wrong way, right? So here's a kind of thought experiment to help you think through sin. Let's imagine you're at a party and you gossip about your friend. Because in that moment, you just want to be popular and you want to be liked. Okay, In that instance, Augustine would say what you've done is you have put your love of popularity over your love of your friend. And that's love out of order. And that's what sin is. It's when we put love in the wrong order. And so Augustine would say our love for God should be first. Then it's our love for others, loving ourselves, and then loving things after that. There's a, there's a way these should be arranged. Sin is when they get all jumbled up. So if you're trying to figure out, do I, is what God really has to offer good? First of all, I would say it is. And your temptation to consider that it's not is sin. It's your love getting out of order. And you need to ask God to help you reorder your love. 
beyond that, I would say that just because what God has for you is good does not mean it's easy. Uh, following Jesus can be very costly. Okay, but there are some things we know as Christians, and if you are doubting whether what God wants for you is good or not, I would just invite you to think about how does this all end? And by this all, I mean this world, what happens to it? Ultimately, we know that God is going to bring about his kingdom, that God is going to make everything right. And we want to be a part of that. We know how this ends. We know what lies at the end. And we can sometimes doubt that. You can doubt that and still be a legitimate follower of Jesus. Okay? All of the hardship, all of the cost is ultimately worth it because you know what's coming. And it's not just moral desert. This is the introduction of a book that has yet to be fully realized. Okay? We are living in the introduction. The real world is coming. Um, how do I know what I need to deconstruct? You don't know what, how do I know what I need to deconstruct? <laughs> you don't. Um, and I don't know that you always choose mm. what you need to deconstruct. So some of this is just going to happen by circumstance. So you're going to go to a class and you're going to encounter someone who has an entirely different perspective from you. Maybe you grew up in a church that taught that Catholics aren't Christians at all. And all of a sudden you meet a Catholic person in class and you become friends with them and you realize this person actually is following Jesus. Now all of a sudden you have a cognitive dissonance between what you were taught about Catholics and this Catholic you're experiencing now who actually is following Jesus in a very real way. That's when deconstruction happens. I don't think you choose when it starts for you. I don't think you choose what questions ignite in you. I don't think we all deconstruct the same questions. It's going to happen. Uh, and some of those big questions are coming later on in this series. So like yeah. LGBTQ issues, the problem of evil. Um, there are some things that are common, uh, but I don't know that you get to choose. Right. Because ultimately, it's going to be life happens and it's going to force questions on you. And you can either ignore them and just pretend that they never happened and stay in your nice, tidy construction phase. Or you can engage the question in a real way and grow. Good. Um, is it a sin to doubt? Nope. Is it a sin to doubt? No, it's not. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I need to justify that at all. Um, I'm doubting. Well, what, about, what about Thomas? Oh, okay. Thomas gets a bad rap, y'all. Thomas didn't actually doubt. He just wanted to see the hands. That's not doubt. That is an editorial edition by the people who wrote the little subheaders of your Bible. Thomas didn't doubt. Um, doubt is normal. Okay. And sometimes it's big and sometimes it's small. There are going to be really hard things that happen in your life. You may have a friend who gets cancer and it's painful to watch them. And you will ask, is God really good? Is that sinful? Was it sinful when Job asked? Job never cursed God and died, but he did ask those hard questions. Like, is God truly good? What is happening here? Doubt is normal, 
the Psalms are full of yep. people who asked really hard, doubt-filled questions about God, and they made it into the Bible. So I think you're good. How do I help others who are doubting? How do you help others who are doubting? Okay, so I was a college minister for years, and I think in my earliest years of college ministry, the temptation is when you encounter a student who's doubting, is you want to tell them all the answers, okay? And you want to just get them to the end of the journey because you know what's at the end of it, you know what's coming, but that's not what they need, okay? Someone who has hard questions has to wrestle through them. You may know the answer to their question, and you can say it, but that doesn't mean they're ready to hear it. So you just need to walk alongside them, continue to pray for them, and continue to call them back to Scripture and back to community. Um, and you may not know the answer to their question, in which case, journey through the question with them and with other people who are smarter, wiser, and more experienced than you. Uh, it says... It's basically talking about how this person is experiencing deconstruction. It says, uh, I don't really feel the need for reconstruction, uh, nor does everybody, everyday life allow me to think about this issue. I might give up every old belief. Is it bad to not reconstruct after a time? Or is it okay. Uh, is it bad not to reconstruct? Yeah. I think what I would say is everyone will reconstruct after deconstructing. The question is, what are you reconstructing towards? Sure. Uh, there's a guy who wrote about spiritual formation, uh, how we become more like Christ, and his name is Dallas Willard, and he says that all of us at all times are being spiritually formed, and I'm paraphrasing. All of us at all times are being spiritually formed. The question is, into what? You will deconstruct. You can choose to stay construction. That basically is, I'm going to plead ignorance and ignore that the questions exist. Once you embark on deconstruction, you will reconstruct. What will you reconstruct it into? What do you want it to become? Um, choosing to stay in deconstruction is basically saying there are questions. I refuse to, to navigate answering them. I'm just going to let the questions persist in my life. And no one actually lives that way. Um, not for long. Not for long. It's a phase but you will reconstruct into something. So you are being spiritually formed. The question is, into what? Uh, so this next question says, uh, not all doubt is based on intellectual reasoning. How no. do I tell the difference between doubt that is genuinely built on intellectual concerns and doubt that is built on emotional confusion and merely hiding behind the objections? How do I deal with the emotion-based doubt, both in myself and Okay, so not all doubt is intellectual. Some doubt is emotional. How do I deal with that, both in myself and others? I would say that there's actually no pure intellectual doubt. And that may be a controversial claim. Explain. Again, uh, we are more, emo even the most rationalistic person is more emotional than they seem. And so oftentimes at the root of all of our questions, in my experience working with people, there is an emotional core to it. The intellectual question is kind of a defensive front to that emotional core. And you may not ever be able to deal with that in person again. That's, I think, where God comes in and the Holy Spirit can work in people's lives. We pray for that. 
So I think at its core, all doubt has an emotional component, um, whether that's defiance or sadness or grief, whatever it is, I think there's an emotional core to it all. And just in my experience, because no one's a robot. Um, no one has ever been a purely rational being, um, ever. That's not how we remain. So how do you navigate that? Um, again, emotions are complicated. Uh, they're making a sequel to Inside Out just because emotions are complicated and they want more money. Yeah. Um, hermeneutics of suspicion. Yes. <laughs> so emotions are so complicated, they had to make a sequel to Inside Out. So... A, carefully, um, I have been a parent now for seven years, and that means I have been trying to manage and shape someone else's emotions for seven years, and I'm horrible at it. And I live with that person. They are a representative of half my genetic code, um, and I can barely do that. Okay, so someone that you're not related to, someone you don't live with every day, that's even harder. Um, so you do it carefully. You do it thoughtfully. You ask good questions. Good questions are so powerful. Ask curious questions. Do your best to approach without judgment. Whether you think they're stupid or wrong, uh, just ask curious questions. What about like within yourself? How do you mm. use it? Oh, this is just a, 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 curious, like a question based on curiosity. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think if it's a curiosity-based question, a quick Wikipedia read typically solves it. Uh, this theology said not to do that. Yeah, <laughs> theology, maybe not so much. Uh, if it's just a matter of curiosity, typically a book will solve the problem. Uh, but if it's emotional, that's going to require some more just thought and introspection and prayer. Engaging with resources and people. And engaging people. Yeah. So as far as a prayer practice for navigating that, um, sit down. In a quiet space, make time. Uh, time is essential to the spiritual life. You're going to have to create it. Um, the busiest people are the laziest people because they're not in control of their schedule. So get in control of your schedule and make time. Um, That's a word. <laughs> time management next week. Um, but make time and make space. Sit down somewhere distraction-free and just say to God, God, I need you to help me understand what's going on in my heart because we know that the heart is tricky. Yep. Okay. Uh, it's deceitful. The Bible tells us it's deceitful. So we need God's help to perceive truth within ourselves and we need other people. So for the prayer side, sit down in a quiet space, take some time, 20 minutes, and just say, God, I need you to help me work through this. And you may have to do that a few times. Help me discern what's really going on in my heart. What's at the core of this? Help me navigate it. Give me wisdom. And then you need to talk about it openly and honestly with other people. Um, and again, if it's abuse that's in the background, if it's trauma, you need a professional's help. All right. You ready for a heavy hitter? I'm so ready. Okay, great. So it kind of goes, there's two questions that deal with just the end, like the stuff that causes the things that we have to deconstruct over. It has to do with taking the Bible out of context. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's two questions. The first question, I think this is one person, the other question is another person. Uh, it says, Bible verses have been taken out of context for as long as we have had the Bible, and they have been used to oppress a lot of people, women of color, 
people mm-hmm. of color. They have been used to hurt LGBTQ plus individuals. Mm-hmm. How do you battle with this history and the truth of oppression of this book of truth? That's question one. It's like, give me flashbacks to interviews here. Um, <laughs> and then how do you balance reading the Bible in a literal sense versus the context? So basically, like, how do you handle uh, when you're trying to find truth? Like, what's yeah. the It's not. How do we understand that? How this Bible is being used to hurt people yeah so how do you navigate the bible's decontextualization and its abuse of other people again i'm repeating myself for this microphone and um, that it's slumped over i hope they could hear it um hey own it the bible has been used badly um when american black slaves were given the bible exodus and philemon were taken out Okay, they just removed, slave owners removed the book of Philemon from the Bible that they gave to enslaved Americans. Okay, they just took it out because they knew what would happen if it got read. Because in Philemon, the entire social order of the Greco-Roman world gets overturned. And Paul says, hey, this person that you owned, you are to treat him as a brother. And I am sending him, this is Paul writing, so it's not just like some person, it's Paul who says, treat him as a brother in Christ because he has been my brother in Christ and I am your leader. And if I'm your leader and he's my brother, then what does that make him to you? So take him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. So slave owners knew if that got left in the Bible that slaves got to read, the institution was over. There was no justifying it. They had to twist scripture to justify it. And scripture gets twisted. It gets taken out of context. The very unfortunate reality is we cannot control what people with bad intentions will do to the holy word of God. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say, but not if you're reading all of it in context. And so some of that is going to require homework. You have to be smarter. You have to be more studious. You have to do the hard work of understanding that this is not 66 books. It is one book that tells one story from the perspective of lots of different people across thousands of years of history, but it's one story. And so there are going to be times when you're going to have to say, wow, I really need to understand ancient Semitic cultures and the property law transitions between concubines and women and childbearing because what happens to Hagar is horrible. And you can very easily take Hagar or Hagar, if you're reading in Hebrews, story out of context. Sarah gives Hagar to Abram to bear a child because she's trying to make the covenant happen. Horrible. But you've got to keep reading the story because do you know what happens next? The very first person in the entire Bible to name God is Hagar, a woman who has property. Calls God, you are the God who sees. Abram doesn't name God. Adam and Eve don't name God. It's Hagar. So you have to read the whole story because there are things that are just hard to see. And things get twisted, like the women in ministry example. Did you know, uh, so for, and again, I could go on and on about this. So we'll just do a tidbit. So if you have your Bible, look at Romans 16. We'll just walk 
this is one of my favorite passages, and you're going to go, why? Um, so let's look at Romans 16. I'm going to get there on my iPad because I didn't plan to talk about Romans 16 tonight. Um, we're just going to talk about how Scripture has been twisted and how we have to be smarter. Okay? So, uh, Paul, Romans 16.1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon. There it is, right there. Okay? Of the church in Centrea. Paul got a haircut there. You can read that in the book of Acts. What? Uh, again, this is one story. Paul gets a haircut in Centrea. That details in Acts. It's probably where he met Phoebe. Okay? A deacon of the church. Did you know? This is, again, you have to be smarter. You have to understand context. In the ancient world, if someone was delivering a letter, this is what's happening here. He's commending Phoebe. She's the person carrying the letter of Romans. In Greco-Roman culture, the person who delivered the letter would read the letter aloud and then explain authorial intent because you could not assume that your audience was literate. Most people couldn't read. So when you had someone deliver a letter, you picked a literate person who could read it, and then it was their job to answer any questions about it. So that means the very first person in a church ever to read Romans aloud and explain it is Phoebe the deacon from Centrea where Paul got a haircut. Okay, Romans 16.1. It's right there. Uh, I ask her to, you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people. And by the way, this is all commentaries. This is in books. You can read the books. You can find it. It's out there. Um, it, this is not a secret. Uh, greet Prissa or Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Notice the woman is listed first. Again, I'm just talking about women and women's roles. Some people use Paul to say, Paul actually thought women couldn't lead in the church. But right here, we're only a verse and a half in, okay? And where are women? Front and center. Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. Paul calls them co-laborers. He also does that for Yodia and Syntyche in Philippians 2, uh, Philippians 4, sorry. Uh, they risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them, a man and a woman. And the woman's listed first. Great also the church that meets at their house. That means they presided over that church. Um, again, all of this is in commentaries. You can find it. Epinetus, who was the first convert of Christ in Asia, uh, that's a slave name, so he's a slave. Again, just turning it all upside down. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you, another woman. Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. There's a chance, depending on the Bible that you hold and when it was produced, that it may say Junius. Anyone got that? Okay. So there is, uh, Scripture is remarkably consistent over time. Uh, several hundred years after this is written, someone changed Junia to Junius, added a, a letter to the end to make it sound like a masculine name. We don't know who, we don't know when. It probably happened sometime around the 10th century just based on our best textual evidence. So sometime around the 10th century, someone changes Junia, a woman's name, to Junius, a male's name that actually does not exist in any Roman literature anywhere. And then the view gets popularized by Martin Luther during the Protestant Reformation and shapes the way that this text got read for centuries so that people thought Junius was a man, even though the oldest and best texts we have say that she's a woman. Okay, so the text sometimes gets turned. This is why it's important to be smarter, to study. Um, so Junia is an apostle. Okay. We could go on and on and on. There are a million women, Tryphena and Tryphosa, Persis, who's likely a Persian slave. Uh, 
Rufus uh, and his mom, uh, who has also been a mom to me, um, Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and a sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people. These are all, like, half of the names Paul is saying are women. Okay? But for years, and this is not endemic to the early church, we know that women had active roles in the first 300 years of the church's life. So here in Romans, we see women are all over the place, and it's not until Christianity becomes the religion of the Roman Empire that women's roles start to get diminished. Okay? So that's just one example of Read the text. Read the whole text. Don't just say, well, one time Paul said, I don't permit a woman to speak in church. He did say that. You need to figure out why he said it in that place and at that time and what was going on. Because here in Romans, something else is happening. Clearly, women are speaking in the life of the church. So read the whole story. Don't just read one verse. Read it all. Yeah. And I think it's good as well to bring up as you're reading through it all, it helps you navigate those questions and those assertions that you'll put towards you know, the Bible being impressive, things like that, because people are using it to those ends. Again, that primitive of a suspicion, what are we trying to achieve yeah. here? You know, is it oppression or is it truth? Yeah. You know, uh, and there are specific schools of scholarship. So if you have particular concerns about women of color through scripture and their interpretation of scripture, there's an entire school of thought that actually works through that perspective and that lens. And we actually owe a lot of biblical studies to what's called the womanist perspective of scripture. So, well, there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about, but I could go on all day. Time, uh, we're going to call it tonight. Again, if your question did not get answered, um, here's what I say. Some of these questions relate more to the coming questions in the next few weeks. So, so and those people are better than me. <laughs> Um, but uh, I think you did a great job. Um, but uh, so some of those questions will eventually get answered. If, if some of them did not get answered tonight and you really, really have that burn on your heart, we'll hang out for a bit longer. Good job.